0: All right, so, oh, let's see, that's my donor hole. So, if you haven't been here lately, Susan, you mind helping, as you do all the time? So, we have these sheets, it's just a list of the books of the Bible, and Bob, you want to help too? You want to do that? So, and if you need a pen, if you want to, we're at the tail end of something that you might want to jump in on. Um, for the last, I don't know, month or so, we've been looking at every book of the Bible at a 30,000 foot view. And just creating, just for ourselves, a little bit of a cheat sheet of what is the Bible about? What's Genesis about? What the heck is Leviticus about? Does anybody know what's going on in 2 Chronicles? What is this? And the reason we're doing it is not just so that you'll have a cheat sheet to look at. In reality, we could accomplish that in about, I could, just, I could have handed that to you filled out. And that would have taken us five minutes. Um, or you could just go online and say, you know, summary of the minor prophets and get a little, get a little blurb. My goal in doing this over these last several weeks, and the reason we're taking some time on it, is because I want, we just I just want to entice you. I want to incentivize you, I want to resource you to go into this thing yourself. I've, I think of the Bible like this. The Bible is like a mountain, okay? And that mountain is filled with treasure. There's veins of gold. There's some like, I don't know how this works, but there's diamonds in these mines, but the problem is, if you don't know how, if, if, if for you, if the only part of the Bible that like you feel safe wandering into is like, I don't know, what is it? The Psalms maybe, or maybe the Gospels. Maybe there's some part of the Bible that is like accessible to you and available to you, and you might read that. Well, game on, because there's treasure there. But it's probably the case for a lot of people that like the minor prophets is a dark tunnel. There are no lights in that thing. I don't know what's down there. and I'm not going to read it. Or maybe you're like, I don't know, the history books, blah, 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 blah. And if, the, if those tunnels never get illumined, if you never get incentivized to go down, if it's just like, I don't know what that's about, it's just rando stuff, then you might, you'll n- you never go down there. But the truth is, it's filled with treasure, and you can find it. And I really, what well, all we're trying to do here is to make you, help you see, like, oh, okay, I have some idea how Kings and Chronicles and Samuel, go back to Samuel and Kings and Chronicles, how those things interplay. Or I have some idea, what is the difference between Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel? And I've never read those. i this one time I started to read Ezekiel, and it was so weird that I just stopped because I was completely lost. Can we try to make take some of those things and make it be a little bit less intimidating, a little less opaque to you? That's what we're trying to do. And so we've been doing this. If you missed it, this class is always recorded thanks to a couple of friends. <laughs> and Where's Scott? Scott was in, <laughs> was in here. So a couple of folks record this, and they post it online. And so... Uh, if you if you if you want to go back and kind of catch up to where we've been just with this series, that might be really helpful to you, so that the Bible itself might be a little more accessible. That's what Makes sense. All right. So what we're going to do today is work on the prophets. The prop and, and we may get I, you and I never know how far we're going to get, but we'll start with the, we're going to do the, the major prophets. The prophets break up into two sections. How do you divide the prophets, you guys? Major minor, which means. That's right, long and short. It's not important and unimportant. Major and minor is a little bit, it sounds like it means important and unimportant. All it means is long and short. So there's gold in the minor prophets, um, and the, the, the longer ones are just a little bit longer. What are the five major prophets? I'm going to eat a donut hole, so you guys work on that. Where are they? Isaiah? My mouth's full of food. Isaiah, Jeremiah? Daniel? Ezekiel? Ezekiel?
1: Daniel? Daniel.
0: It's, a trick, it's a trick question. And Lamentations. So this is kind of weird. When I say what are the major prophets, there are five of them. The truth is there's four humans and there's five books because one of those humans gets two books. Okay? So there are five major prophetic books written by four prophets who are classified that way. Ezekiel. Isaiah, Daniel, and I—what did I say? Ezekiel. Uh, I want—I was going to save Jeremiah for last. Jeremiah, Jeremiah is the one that gets the two, right? The other ones get—the other ones just get one. Okay. So Jeremiah—doughnut <clears throat> hole was a bad idea. <laughs> I mean, it was also a good idea, but it was partly a bad idea. So when Jeremiah writes his book, it's long. But then he also has this little short five-chapter sucker named Lamentations. But we, we can, they kind of group with him, okay? So, <laughs> thank you. That was a problem in this class. Thanks, Jennifer. <laughs> so, thank you for knowing that I don't drink coffee. Um, so, which of those major prophets is the most accessible to you guys? We'll just, we'll just do them kind of. We'll draw the information out of you. Is any any one of those better known or more familiar to you? <laughs> Isaiah? That would have been my guess. Jeremiah. Oh, we got a shout out for Jeremiah? Okay, well, we can, you guys can have a cage match. I think for most people, they would say that Isaiah is the one they know best of all. I would say Isaiah is, will be my favorite, which doesn't necessarily mean anything, but Isaiah is super, super rich. So those of you that would, would say that Isaiah is your go-to, tell me... First, tell me about the man, kind of the context. What do, you, what do you know about Isaiah? Do you have any kind of information about him in your brain? Very good. So it begins, begins with his vision. In the year the king of died, I saw the Lord lifted up. He, he has this transport into this temple, right? So that gives us a little bit of a clue of when Isaiah's ministry took place. Do you guys know? Do you remember this? We said all the prophets are either pre-exilic, exilic, or post-exilic, Right? Um, meaning that the big deal is that in 586 B.C., Babylon is going to get obliterated by Nebuchadnezzar. Prior to that, in 722, the other half of Israel, the northern tribes, got, got their butts kicked by, by Assyria. These big events are massive. Where does Isaiah fit in this, in this whole kind of spectrum here? Between the Assyrian and the Babylonian. But, between, is that what you said? Yeah. Yes. That's right. Lily's exactly right. So Isaiah is written after Assyria crushes the northern kingdom, but before Babylon's gonna destroy the southern kingdom. All right? So he's post-judgment and he's pre-judgment. He's right here, and the judgment is coming. and he's mostly concerned with Judah because Judah's all that's left, and he's saying it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. So you want to be, be aware. Okay. What else do you guys know about Isaiah? John?
1: Isaiah is very messianic. It's uh, filled with making prophecies of both the first coming and the second coming. You've uh, got Isaiah 53, the first coming. And compare Isaiah 63 to uh, Revelation chapter
0: 19. Excellent. Okay. So John is saying that re- that Isaiah is filled with messianic content, and it is. You guys know lots and lots and lots of lines from Isaiah. Probably the most famous is what John just mentioned as Isaiah 53. Do you guys, if I say Isaiah 53, is that meaningful to you? It's by his stripes. You know, the the Lord has laid our transgressions on him. By his stripes we are healed. There's a lot of lines from Isaiah 53 that would be familiar to you, I think. That is the fourth of four servant songs. So the second half of Isaiah. Isaiah breaks very neatly into two different halves. Curiously, there's 39 chapters in the first half. There are 39 chapters in the Old Testament. There are 27 chapters in the second half. There are 27 chapters in the New Testament. It's odd. It's an interesting thing. But the second half of the book um, is, lo- is, well, both halves. There are lots of messianic content. But the servant songs are very well-known passages in Isaiah. Four different, four different chapters, essentially, that paint pictures of the Messiah. Those things are beautiful, worth knowing. Mm-hmm. What other what lines from Isaiah that you know? For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. Yes. Yes. His name is a wonderful counsel, almighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, of his reign, of his government, there'll be no end. You know, all that. That's all, that's all Isaiah. Lots and lots of language that you'd find from Isaiah. He speaks often about the Messiah. However, do you know what he's primarily, in the most immediate sense, talking about? I'll give you a hint. It's the same thing they're all talking about. What are the prophets about? Straighten, straighten up or you're going to get squashed. It's about the judgment coming, right? But the, the prophets, not only do they see, straighten up, you're going to be squashed, but they also say, and then after you're squashed, he will restore you. The prophets are about judgment and restoration, and Isaiah is no exception to that. But he happens to have really an uncanny, very peculiar, very, very high level of insight into the Messiah, which is so strange. Um, do you know how Isaiah dies? Anybody know this? John, how's he die? Now,
1: this is to that's right. Uh, Jewish
0: tradition
1: uh, was sawed in half.
0: That's exactly right. Sawed in half. In in Hebrews, uh, what is that? Eleven. At the very end of Hebrews in Hebrews 11, it says somewhere sawed in two. They're talking about that's about Isaiah. Um, which is so interesting. On the one hand, God gives Isaiah like this extraordinary, peculiar level of insight into the Messiah. It just kind of makes you feel like he's God's favorite, right? He shows him things 700 years before the fact that nobody else sees. And on the other hand, he gets sawed in half. Um, the story is that he was hiding in a tree as the king was trying to get him. The king knew that and they cut down the tree with him in the, in the hollow part. So is he God's favorite or is he not? Right? Isn't that strange? Have you ever noticed, have you ever seen this phenomena where someone has an extraordinary blessing, peculiar gifting, peculiar insight, and yet God brings into their life, allows into their life, like a shocking amount of suffering? Jesus. Jesus, yes. <laughs> there would be a pattern there, right? And it's so strange because you kind of feel like, wait a minute, I'm Isaiah. And
1: then again, it's your perspective. It's your, what's your time horizon? If it's, if it's
0: Yeah. Not this
1: moment
0: in time. That's right. Eternity is your own. That's right. That's right. And yet those moments, how long does it take to saw somebody in half? You know, time stood still for Isaiah. This is brutal. There's some brutal stuff. Okay. So Isaiah is super, is very, very worth reading. However, if you sit down to read it, if he, he, he's the first. And if you're going to go through Isaiah in order, let me warn you of something. It's not, it's a genre that you're probably not familiar with. Okay. Isaiah is organized around a group of what we call oracles, and they're not necessarily, well, it's not even to say they're absolutely not in a continuous narrative form. So imagine you pick up a newspaper, right, and you read the first story, and then you go into the second story, and then you go into the third story, and you're expect, and you're like, wait, what, what just happened? Like, why is, we were talking about this, and now we're talking about that, and now we're talking about this, and it would be bewildering to you if you read if you picked up a newspaper and you read it as if it was continuous flow right? You know not to do that. You know that each story in a newspaper is its own unit, and you're not shocked that the two units don't necessarily relate, right? You need to read Isaiah and all the prophets in a, in a similar fashion, right? So they're oracles. He says this, and it might be like five years later he says something else, and it's getting written down. And it can be a little bit, it can be, if you read through Isaiah, just 66 chapters front, front to back, you could very well be like, I'm lost in this story, well, that's because it's not a story. Okay, don't don't sweat that. And if you're gonna if you're gonna wade into the to the prophets, and I hope that you will, I'd really suggest that you pick up a study Bible. Just there's there's two that I think are fantastic. You may have one that you love, and that's fine. But the two that I think are excellent are the NIV Study Bible by Zondervan, and the ESV Study Bible by Crossway. Either one of them is going to have little footnotes at the bottom and a little essay at the beginning that will kind of help you like, oh, I recognize where one oracle stops and another begins. I kind of see how this thing is, is flowed out. And that would really help you be less bewildered. Problem is, if you read it and you're like bewildered, you might give up. And there's treasure in there we don't want you to miss. Kelly Sue. Is it true that the prophets often
1: organize thematically?
0: Yes. So Kelly says, is it true that the prophets organize thematically?
1: Or, or the, the, the theme
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So we have, we have a fundamental like, assumption that everything is chronologically oriented. But it's not. The Gospels aren't even chronologically oriented. We, th- we tend to think that everything is A, then B, then C, then D. But sometimes they'll group things in ways that, that have a different point. It would be hard to like, tell you what those all are here. That would be really tedious. Which is why I said pick up a study Bible. That would be helpful to you to kind of break go into it. But you will find, if, if you read through it, you'll find that lots of it is just going to go right over your head. That's cool. But some of it will stick. And then you read it again, and more of it's going to stick. So Isaiah is a great gateway here. All right, bro. So you've used the analogy with, especially with the prophets, about how we have mountain ranges and they look like they're really close, but
1: we realize that there are these gaps. over so the time, from this perspective, they may appear this way, but
0: the reality
1: is—that's
0: right. Absolutely true. So when I, you know, John mentioned that Isaiah's going to give us stuff about the first coming and the second coming, right? And that's true. But he doesn't say that he doesn't say, and hey, Jesus is going to come, and then he's going to come back. He just talks about the day of the Lord, and then we're like, oh, well, the day of the Lord stretched out over a whole great big, big span. And that's absolutely true. So you will see in Isaiah 53, the crucifixion. And you will see Isaiah 65 and 66 is all about the new heavens and the new earth. It's about the, the consummation of all things. So so jump in, go for it, okay? That's Isaiah. This is gonna take forever. Jeremiah, what's Jeremiah about? What what's his what's his mode, you guys? Fall of Jerusalem, absolutely. He has a he has a nickname. Anybody know Jeremiah's nickname? Weeping prophet. Weeping Prophet, that's right. Is there uh, something else? He's sometimes called the weeping prophet, and he's sometimes called the prophet of doom. Okay? His deadline, his timeline is right up to the Babylonian captivity. He is in the it's coming, it's coming, it's right here. Now it's coming right upon us, and Jeremiah sees it, and he's an incredibly empathetic man, and it is hard to be empathetic in a world filled with pain.
1: Isaiah.
0: <laughs> no, Isaiah's earlier, so Isaiah comes first, and then Jeremiah. So Isaiah's more like around like seven hundred, as Jeremiah's more like five eighty six, coming coming right up, and then and then into the thing. So Isaiah was his forerunner. Jeremiah is like. Y'all, we're out of time here. It's not even like like Isaiah's like, repent before it's too late. And Jeremiah's like, uh, yeah. It's it's too late. It's we're 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 in it for sure. <laughs> was there was there a hand back there? No? Okay. So um what are, are any famous passages in Jeremiah that you know? There's a couple that we that Jeremiah tries to get a little more little more airtime on. Plans for heaven. Okay. All right. So Jeremiah 2911 is the most cross-stitched, ripped from its context misunderstood verse okay so Jeremiah twenty nine eleven 11 says I know the plans I have for you right what is it what's the rest Do you all have it on a bumper sticker how does it go <laughs> yeah right, right right so we what, what, what we act like we send our children off to college and say I know the plans of the, this is what the Lord says to you I know the plans I have for you plans to prosper you da, da, da. okay well the Lord may want to prosper your kids when they go to college but you do not want to quote Jeremiah 29:11 when you tell them that. Because here's what Jeremiah 29 11 actually means. Y'all are going into captivity. And you're going to be there for 70 years. You're going to die in Babylon. Your children are going to die in Babylon. Your grandchildren are going to come back to the land. So when you write 29:11 on the bottom of a handwritten note, what you're saying is, you're going to die in Babylon. Your kids are going to die in Babylon. But it's going to work out in 70 years. Okay? So it is the most misquoted verse in the Bible, probably. All right? Long term is good. Short term, uh, this it's going to be rough. Okay, that's Jeremiah's message. He's the prophet of doom. All right? So that one's well-known. What else is well-known from Jeremiah? Also 31.31, 31, which is not doom, but the new covenant. Yes. Okay, Jeremiah 31.31 31 was one of my favorite passages. Look, look at this one. Look this one up. This is a great text. Jeremiah 31.31. 31. So remember, he's the prophet of doom. He's saying it's coming. The judgment is coming. You're going to get worked. But all of the prophets have two messages. It's going to go really badly. There will be a restoration. After it goes really badly, things are going to get better. And in 31 31, it's easy to remember, right? Just think Baskin Robbins. Does that still exist? Jeremiah 31 31. He says, The time is coming, declares the Lord. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, it will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after that time. I'll put my law in their minds. I'll write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. New covenant. This didn't work very well. Y'all couldn't keep the law. So the time is coming. We're going to do it all together differently. So Jeremiah 31 is a really, really important chapter. That would be worth knowing. And so Jeremiah, prophet of doom, the weeping prophet, he can see through his tears to the day that all things will finally be made right. That's going to be a very consistent phenomenon across the Okay. Anything else from Jeremiah that you like? That you remember?
1: Thirty-three-three.
0: Thirty-three-three. I don't know that offhand. What does that say? Read it. Oh, it's it Sing it. Mm-hmm. To, okay, I'll read it to you. So Jeremiah thirty-three-three. Uh, let's see. Let me give the context. While Jeremiah was still confined in the courtyard of the guard, the word of the Lord came to him. This is what the Lord says: Call to me, and I will answer you, and tell you great and unsearchable things you do not know. Yeah. Yeah. So, now I'd have to look into, I don't actually know all that's going on there. He does, there is, a, oh, by the way, I should say this, Jeremiah is the one of, the, of all these prophets, well, D- Dana's going to do it too, but Jeremiah does bring a little bit of narrative to it, a little bit of flow. He's got this best friend named Baruch, and there's just different things that happen where there's a little bit of a storyline that kind of holds Jeremiah, Jeremiah together. So in this, he's suffering, right, he's going to get, he's going to get beat up too, but God is, God is making uh, a promise that he will respond to him in the this, which is good. Because Jeremiah goes through an awful lot. Okay, so far, so good. Let's do Jeremiah's book. What's his what's his second book? Okay, what do you know about Lamentations? It is sad. It is so sad. Okay. He is so this is basically this is Jeremiah's reflection on the fall of Jerusalem. He's like, it's bad. It's so bad. He's watching the the sorrow and the sadness of it. I just ten minutes ago had a conversation with Tommy. Tommy, do you mind can I just relate what we just talked about? Is it okay? So Tommy's a, Tommy's a nurse. He works in a COVID ICU wing, right? And so Tommy is present all day long, dressed up in like, you know, whatever, masks and gowns, and they tape your gloves to your hands, I'm guessing. And he's with people that are suffering and dying terribly. He was telling me, that, I didn't know this. He says, he told me that if you're on a ventilator, um, the, the actual experience of being ventilated is, is like torture. It's just misery. Even if you survive that, and you probably aren't going to, but if you do survive that, it's like you're going to go through PTSD. It's just—it's a very, very... He said, in order to save you, we have to torture you, right? Now, imagine that Tommy sat down after work one day, and he just wrote out what work was like today. It's like, oh, my gosh. There's so much sadness, so much loss, so much hurt. Stories of redemption in the midst of it, stories of families that love well in those final days, but he's just a witness to pain, right? Jeremiah is a witness to pain. And it's so much so that though his job is to warn of a judgment and then appoint to the resurrection, not resurrection, but restoration afterwards, when he's writing Lamentations, he faintly hopes for the restoration. Look at how it ends. Lamentations. Go to the very last chapter of Lamentations. This is the end of the book. Uh, Let's see. Yeah, we go to chapter 5, and we're going to go like... I don't even know. Verse 16, say, The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. Because of this, our hearts are faint. Because of these things, our eyes grow dim. For Mount Zion, which lies desolate, with with jackals prowling over it. You, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures from generation to generation Why do you always forget us? Why do you forsake us for so long? Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may return. Renew our days as of old. Unless you have utterly rejected us and are angry with us beyond measure. He's hurting. It's like, whoa, whoa. I mean, I know, I know, I know. We watched it. We were warning of it. But now that it's come upon us, like, when does it stop? <coughs> Have you utterly rejected? is a sorrowful book. As Jeremiah, here, here, here's what you need to see here. Jeremiah is finally, fa- he's been warning of it. But when the full consequence of sin is before him, it completely overwhelms him goal in life, one of our goals in life would be that we would be completely overwhelmed by the effect of sin well before that moment. That we would see it coming and we would avert it. That we would bend the knee. That we would honor him instead of flippantly thinking that we can get away with it until it's too late. That's what that's what Lamentations is about. The judgment has come. Brad? You answered it. I was going to ask if he would, wrote it when he was seeing the fall or still foreseeing the fall. So it, he's in the middle of it. He's in it. Yeah, he's there. So he, we, would, we would consider Jeremiah to be not a pre-exilic prophet, but an exilic prophet. Exilic. Okay. So far, so good? So that's two of them. Isaiah and Jeremiah with Jeremiah's tale book. All right. Who's the third? Yeah. Ezekiel. What do you know about Ezekiel? <laughs> Wait, what'd you say? Dry bones. Dry bones. That's a thing. That's good. We'll, we'll come to that. What, what do we know about the guy? Stuart? Saw the wheel. Okay, he saw the wheel. Okay. He does see the wheel. Um do you have a sense of e- Ezekiel? Do you have like a mood or a mode or a impression of him at all?
1: Just,
0: Go ahead, Kelly. He's
1: constantly, his whole life is an object lesson before
0: God. Yes. Yes. So everything is is uh it's just weird and freaky and constantly objectless.
1: It's tangible, concrete things that he's using to that God has chosen
0: Absolutely. Ezekiel, the answer is he's weird. Okay. It's just super, super strange. Um, he has strange, I mean, it's like, if you, write, you could be like, okay, so Ezekiel was like a PCP user or something, right? I mean, he has all these bizarro visions. Everything is super strange. He was not a PCP user, <laughs> as far as I know. But, but God would, but he was, he was a submitted man, and God would tell him to do weird stuff, and so he did it. So imagine, if you will, that you just have this very strong impression. The God is telling you to go to downtown Roanoke, take off all your clothes, and lie on your side in the sidewalk as a judgment to the nations. <laughs> Would you do it? And bake bread over dung. That's right. And oh, and while you're there, all the food that I want, I want you to get a pile of like you know you know cow manure, dry it out, and then cook your food over the poop while you're lying there naked. I mean, like God is or his his wife dies. He's like your wife is gonna die. Okay, you're about to get married. Your wife, Gina's gonna die, so sorry. And when she does, do you know what you know what Ezekiel's limitation is? You can't mourn. No mourning. Don't cry. Just suck it up. Right? His whole life is this like this weird picture lesson, the little dramas. And he and he writes about him. So when you read Ezekiel, you're like, what is happening here? It is a total freak show. Strange stuff going on. John? One of the other uh, things about that about right here okay the vision of the river of life is that what you're saying okay yes this is all the very from chapter 40 and on is all this temple we're, we're, hold on we'll come back to that in a minute i'll show you what's going on in the temple because that's actually a really important part of ezekiel so good so um so ezekiel's weird okay say it again New heart, new spirit is massive, so Ezekiel 36, we'll come to that in a second too, and then 37, which flows out of that. So wait, hang on, before we go into the chapter passages, here's what, just big picture, Ezekiel's strange, he does weird things, he'll act things out in like these bizarre little dramas, okay, and he also has visions. Ezekiel 1 is, I love, Ezekiel, we should read Ezekiel 1, It's this. he has this dream, and it's like a dream, it's, it's a vision. It 's like a waking dream, and as things all come together, he sees the judgment that is coming, but then he sees mercy in the midst of the judgment and that his vision there is such a fantastic picture. Um, chapter one, if you, can, if you could slow, do this, this would be an interesting thing. read chapter one and get out some crayons, okay and draw Ezekiel one you don 't ever have to show anybody what you 're doing, okay My drawing would be horrific but it actually, it's very, very visual. So translate the words into vision. Just do it. Just sometime this week. Read Ezekiel 1 and get out some, you know, color markers or whatever. And what is he drawing a picture of? And what does it all mean? He's, there's so much insight jammed into Ezekiel 1. That'll be some, Maybe someday we'll unpack that together here. Um, but draw your pictures and see what's going on there. There's great stuff there. Okay. Now, having said all that, weird, weird, weird little dramas and weird, weird, weird visions, what are, what are our favorite passages... And we've already said, let's do Valley of Dry Bones, okay? So what's the Valley of Dry Bones about? No idea, but you know it's in Ezekiel. Okay, that's something. Do you know what it's about? (laughs) Okay, so interesting. So Ezekiel 37, you guys familiar with the 37? Here, the, the strange thing about Ezekiel 37 is that we tend to think that it's about a literal resurrection from the dead because there is going to be a literal resurrection from the dead. There really is. Do you know this? Everybody who has ever lived is going to be raised from the dead when Jesus returns. Yes. The graves will open. This is attested to repeatedly, Old Testament and New Testament. Curiously, that's not what Ezekiel 37 is about. It is not about our resurrection. There is a literal resurrection, it's just not in Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel 37 is an explanation of Ezekiel 36, all right? It's a double-click on Ezekiel 36. So let's go take a look really quick at what's going on there. Ezekiel 36, what is that parallel, Bob? It's the uh, other
1: passage that we just looked at in Jeremiah, that's the new covenant, new spirit.
0: That's it. Yeah, so we, said, we read that Jeremiah 31, 31 and following. The uh, Ezekiel's version of that. Is Ezekiel 36, 24, and following. So go back, go to Ezekiel 36. You'll, you'll hear the echo from the Jeremiah 31. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I'm gonna d- make everything new and better. Here's how, here's how Ezekiel sees it. He says, This is these these two texts are incredibly important in the Old Testament. Jeremiah 31 Ezekiel 36 it says this I will take you out of the nations This is 3624 I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean I will cleanse you from all your impurities from all your idols I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you and I will remove from you your heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Okay. Remember how Jeremiah 31 is saying, ah, This didn't work. I'm gonna write my law on your heart. I'm gonna move this thing from an external code to an internal code. Ezekiel is saying the same thing. The time is coming when something's gonna happen. That time, by the way, has already come. We live on the other side of this. This is all in anticipation that when the Messiah comes, he's not coming alone. Right. Or rather, we could say that when the Messiah leaves He's not leaving us alone, that he will put his spirit in us to shape us, to change us, that we are, in a manner of speaking, sock puppets. You're like a sock puppet. And as a sock puppet, you're laying on the table and you're not able to do what he wants you to do. But the spirit of God inhabits you and he moves your lips and he moves your limbs and he lives his life through us. Jeremiah and Ezekiel both saw that the day was coming when God will indwell his people. And enable us to be the men and the women that he wants us to be. And it's massive, massive news. Okay? That's Ezekiel 36. And then Ezekiel 37 is about that actually happening. So flip the page. Go to 37. This is probably the climax of, of, well, I don't know. There's a couple climaxes here. But in Ezekiel 37, there's these bones. Look, Look at it. We'll just run through it really quickly. In verse 1. Lord hand of the Lord was upon me, and he shows me this uh, valley full of bones. He leads me back and forth among them, and he asks the question, Can these bones live? And he says, I don't know. You tell me. And he says, Prophesy to the bones, listen to what the prophecy is. He says, verse 5, I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. That's the headline. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. And then I'll attach tendons to you, make flesh come upon you, cover you with skin, I will put my breath in you. Now that's the point. And you will come to life, you will know that I'm the Lord. So then what's going to happen is all these bones come together and they start getting meat and flesh and ligaments and tendons and everything's great, but they're all still dead. We've gone from bones to corpses, which is arguably not that impressive. And then it says in verse 8, I looked and the tendons and the flesh appeared on them and the skin covered them, but there was no breath in them point is the breath. The point is the breath. By the way, the word for breath in Hebrew is the exact same word for spirit. And so it says in verse 9, prophesy to the bones, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe into these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath entered them. They came to life and stood on their feet, a vast army. And he said to me, son of man, these are the bones of the whole house of Israel. Our bones are dried up, our hope is gone, we are cut off, and God says, well, here's what's going to happen, and we'll skip down to verse 14. I will put my spirit in you, and you will live, and I will settle you in your yeah. own land. And then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken, that I have done it, declares the Lord. Lord. The fulfillment of Ezekiel 36 is not the resurrection from the dead. That is coming. But that's not what he's talking about. The fulfillment of Ezekiel 36 is the giving of the spirit, which happened at Pentecost. Yes. When you became a follower of Christ, God himself moved into your life, and this changed everything. This is what is going on. This is a huge, massive teaching in 36. Okay, That's really important for Ezekiel. So far, so good? I know we're blitzing through. What else is important in Ezekiel? Anything else that strikes you guys that you're like, yeah, but what about this? John, you mentioned. What's, what's, the, what's the thing that you talked about?
1: Um, in the midst of that uh, description, which I always hate when I can the Bible it comes to that section. Yeah. But there is a midst of all of that this vision of the of Bible. Absolutely. Which revelation references.
0: Yep. So John is kind of downstreaming this uh, passage in, the, in Ezekiel 40. Ezekiel sees a vision of a temple. Okay, so you know that there was a temple that was built once upon a time, you know, under Solomon, builds his temple, and I think it's ruined by Nebuchadnezzar. They're going to rebuild the temple again under, um, you know, Ezra, Haggai, all this kind of stuff going on, um, Zerubbabel. But Ezekiel sees a future temple that's never been built. This is not Herod's temple. The thing that he sees has never, ever happened. And what John is going to do in Revelation, he's going to pick up on Ezekiel's temple and say, that temple that he sees is the future ultimate real temple that is coming. And in the midst of that whole passage, what, what is it happening? He walks around. If you read Ezekiel 40 and then you go read the end of Revelation, you'd be like, okay, John was stealing from Ezekiel here. And in the midst of it, there's this fantastic passage. Let's see, where is it? Is it 42? 47. 47? Way off, okay. So listen to this. Go to, go to Ezekiel 47, and he sees a river. It's behaving very strangely. Says verse, we'll start with verse 1. The man brought me back to the entrance of the temple, and I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple. Water's coming under the south side. He brought me out of the north gate, blah, blah, blah. The water's flowing from the south side. They we went east with a measuring line in his hand. He measured off 1,000 cubits, and the water was ankle deep. Then he measured off another 1,000 cubits, and now the water was knee. He measured another 1,000, and the water was up to the waist. You all know this doesn't happen, Right? Trickles don't become rivers. This is, that doesn't, that's not how it works. He measured up another thousand, and now it was a river that I could not cross because the water had risen. and was deep enough to swim in a river that no one could cross. And he led me back to the banks of the river. And when I arrived there, I saw a great number of trees on each side of the river. That's Revelation 22. John is going to steal this all, steal this off. The water flows toward the eastern regions. Verse 9, swarms of living creatures will live there. Wherever the river flows, there'll be large numbers of fish because the water flows there. And it makes the salt water fresh. That doesn't happen either, okay? So where the river flows, everything will live. (coughs) And the fishermen will stand along the shore from Engedi to En There will be places for spreading nets, many kinds of fish fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail. Every month they will bear, because the water from the sanctuary flows them. And their fruit will serve for food, and their leaves for healing. John is going to take all of that in Revelation. And say, this is what we're to. What he sees is the temple, the place where God dwells, will flow out. And from this will flow life. Probably that river is actually, once again... The holy spirit very very often the spirit is associated with water in the scriptures and the spirit will come and he will bring life he will turn sick things to health the very trees who dip their roots in this will become magical trees healing and life he is seeing that the time is coming when everything will be made well. so ezekiel is not just seeing the judgment but he sees beyond the judgment to the restoration of all this. and if you choose to go through and read his book and wade through all the strangeness, you will discover treasure because it's, it's all in there. All right, Chris. What's the uh, years of this and Psalm one? Uh, Psalm one will be much, much earlier. So Psalm one is going to be more like a thousand BC, and Ezekiel is going to be like, you know, six hundred BC around in there. So that that, but that so that. So, yeah, that that's right. So Psalm 1, is, you guys know what Psalm 1 is? Yes. Blessed is the man, right, who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, to stay in the seat of the mark. Right, he's like a tree planted by streams of living water. So that image, that's actually pervasive throughout the scriptures. God loves to use this image of tree. And so well-being and flourishing in life, you're, you're absolutely right to draw that connection from Ezekiel, what do we say, 47, back down to Psalm 1. That's, good. That's a good catch. And those, those connections, what just happened in there in your brain, Chris, is like different parts are connecting. That's what you want to build. Is The scriptures becomes like, oh, I see how it's all this coherence as we kind of dwell in it. We can make all these kind of touch points. It's great. Okay. We're going to get through one more major prophet. Well, you go down Ezekiel. You got a sense of who Isaiah is, who Jeremiah is, what's going down with Ezekiel. Who, who's the only one we're missing? Daniel. Daniel. Is Daniel the one you know the best? That be say, right? I would think so. And that's prop why do you think you know Daniel the best? Oh, stories. 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 Because it's narrative, right? Because oracles are hard to read and stories are easy to read. That's why, right? So Daniel, you know like Daniel and the Lion's Well what, what are your what are your Daniel stories? Fiery furnace. What is it? Fiery Furnace. Yes. Uh what else? Lion's Den. Lion fiery Furnace. Yeah, he wouldn't eat the food. He would defy, you know, the king's demands right there. You got that weird statue thing. You got all these things. So the first six chapters, so Daniel's 12 chapters, the first half is stories. And if you read through it, it'll feel pretty normal. It's not weird stuff. It's like, I mean, crazy things happen, but at least it's like, it feels like a story. You could make a movie out of it if you wanted to, right? The second half is a freak show, okay? From chapter 7 on. Everything in Daniel just starts getting weirder and weirder and weirder. So it's short of the major prophets. Major means big, not counting lamentations. It's, it's 12 chapters. It's short. These other things are much, much longer. Isaiah 66, these things go on forever. But Daniel is short, and it's full of these amazing stories. And it has what is to me, all my fellows get so weary, strapping guys. You're going to hear about this a lot this year. Do you even know, Sam, has, has Kyle made fun of me for this? My favorite chapter of Daniel? Seven. Seven. Who said it? Seven. I talk about it all the time. Daniel 7, you guys. What's Daniel 7? Son of man. Yes. What, okay, but in a sentence, what is it?
1: <laughs> it's his dream where he, uh, I mean, there's a lot of crazy stuff in the dream, but in particular, it's uh, a vision of the style. Yes. It's the son of man, and that's why Jesus calls himself the son of man.
0: That's right. Coming. That's right. It's this vision of the Messiah, and not just hanging out, but it's, it's the moment where Jesus becomes king. It is the coronation of the Son of Man as king over all things. And it is glorious, okay? So, Daniel, so you get through the first six chapters, and it's great because it's a story. And then chapter 7, things start to spin out of control into strangeness. But I'm promise. Daniel 7 is one of the most important chapters in the Old Testament. It is a picture of the moment where Jesus is granted the kingdoms of the world to reign and rule oh. in, in benevolence and wisdom. It's incredible. So Daniel seven is great. John. At, uh, at Jesus' to court trial
1: before the Sanhedrin, they were having a lot of problems with the degree. Jesus helped them out. He applied Daniel seven himself, and that was.
0: That's right, and he. Yeah, so Jesus absolutely believes that Daniel 7 was about himself, that he is coming as king. You will see he's going to come and reign over all things. And so that's a that's a fantastic chapter to read. By the way, where is Daniel in the timeline? Is he pre-exilic, exilic, or post-exilic? He's exilic. He's right in the middle of it. The whole Daniel is set up. Daniel is one of these these, you know, uh what Nebuchadnezzar did he took like all the smarties. He took the best trained, the best looking, the most athletic, and he brings them into the land to rule in his court. And so Daniel and his buddies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are the one or some of those that, that that are drug away and serve the king. They serve Nebuchadnezzar with excellence, even as they are faithful to their God. It's a fantastic book. I will often use Dan- I often will teach out of Daniel to teach people, and you need this stuff, to teach people. How do you survive in an incredibly secular environment and have a massive outsized impact? Two times, two times, Daniel and his friends get two separate kings, the most powerful, thoroughly pagan, entirely secular men in the world to issue global proclamations extolling the God of Israel. Like, how do you do that? What what is happening? What are they doing? And so if you unpack, and just like we're, we're studying Nehemiah in there, to uh, talk about leadership. If you want to talk about how to have a a godly impact in a secular environment, Daniel is your book. That's what what we're seeing. There are all these books, ultimately, they point to Christ. But Daniel, in a very peculiar way, is a lesson of, like, if you study Daniel, what are the principles of his life? It gives you great insights into how do you do a... Say you work at a company that is as pagan as they come, All right. If you work in this pagan company and you want to make an impact for Christ, how could you do it? Daniel is your guy because he works for Nebuchadnezzar. You don't get any less godly than Nebuchadnezzar. How does he do it? All right. Yeah, Catherine.
1: I, I think I was impacted by his humility.
0: By Daniel? Oh yeah. I mean, and Daniel—he—he's well, he, here to serve the king. Like really, Nebuchadnezzar, that king. And he's going to lower his life down, but always in a way, he's always going to be respectful. He's always going to be gracious. He's always going to be thoughtful. He's going to speak well of him and speak well to him while still pointing him to the fact that God is going to destroy you for your wickedness, sir. You know, it's a a fascinating book. All right, so that's Daniel. All right, so if you choose to, you could. All these things we've been talking about these last number of weeks, you could say, I'm going to to start a Genesis and work my way through. Or I'm going to read those history books and understand that. You might say, okay, I'm intrigued by Ezekiel. Or I'm going to check out Isaiah. Pick whatever you want, right? There's treasure everywhere, and you can find it. And this hopefully will give you a little bit of a map. And then next week, we've got to stop. So next week, we'll try, to look at, we'll try to get through all 12 of the minor prophets. They're shorter, so we can do them a little bit faster. Okay? We'll do that then. Thank you for coming.